Why watch that as a podcast featuring the critic and referee who go head-to-head on a quest to discover the best movies and TV shows Hollywood has to offer. Expect the unexpected from the critic. Well, nothing gets past the ref. We do all the work. So you don't have to. Welcome Welcome to to Why Watch Watch That. So why watch that TV talk? We've got quite a buffet for you of television. <laughs> now, we'll call this the TV buffet. Ooh. And we got a little bit of a series premiere. We got a little bit of a season premiere, a series finale, and even an upcoming sneak peek, if you will. Um, Not really, but sort of. of a new series coming on TV. Now, listen, here's the deal. We know that TV goes full stream ahead. We're going to do our best to keep up with it. However, sometimes you just have to take a nap because you're comatose from all the eating. (laughs) So that may be happening in the future. I'm going to talk the critic into taking a como nap. But before we get into that, series (laughs) premiere. Now, listen, what we do in the shadows isn't Art Kelly's new album. <laughs> that is not the name of his new album. Instead, it is a new TV show on Fox, or FX, excuse me. And I don't know if you remember that it was a movie. Uh, you know what? Who was in that movie? I can't even remember who was in that movie. Uh, Jermaine Clement and Taika Watiti. Yeah, Taika. <laughs> <laughs> Is he involved with this at all? Yeah, and I'm going to get to that. Absolutely, oh, okay. yes. <laughs> so that's on FX, which I feel like it's appropriately there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's season one. It's about 10 episodes. Uh, so tell us a little bit about it. So, yeah, like you were saying, it's based on the mockumentary cult film that starred and was written and directed by, again, Jemaine Clement and Taika Waititi. And this is, of course, what we do in the shadows. Now, just so you know, Ref, uh, Jermaine and Taika are executive producers here. Um, and, or, or I should say, Clement is an executive producer. Taika Waititi directs the pilot episode. Mm-hmm. That's how it usually goes. Yeah. And what's happening here, everybody, so they're not starring in the show, but it does depict the ordinary lives and histories of four vampire housemates. Yeah. <laughs> and these housemates have the same kinds of problems uh, that any other roommates and housemates have. Uh, for instance, there are problems with hygiene. Uh-oh. Oh, but what does that mean for a vampire? There are also problems with love interests, especially when two housemates might be housemates with benefits. Uh-oh. However, these are vampires who have been alive for quite some time so they have their own unique problems and anachronisms. The house they share looks like something from an old horror film, right? And they haven't quite caught up with technology. But to help them with the modern world, they have human familiars, one of whom named Guillermo desperately wants to become a vampire himself. He's been waiting for 10 years for the privilege. And to stay within his master's good-ish graces, Guillermo is an errand boy and procurer of human virgins who supply the vampires with tasty blood. 
But these vampires have a surprise in store for them. When an ancient vampire joins the house and vows to take over the world, which he thinks will happen by taking over Staten Island. <laughs> right? Okay. Now, so if you've seen the film that started it all, I'll say that the TV version continues in that tradition while adding some new ideas here and there. And one of my favorite changes is the addition of an energy vampire. Now you might be thinking, you mean energy vampire as in someone who sucks the life out of people by being incessantly boring and or annoying? And the answer is yes, okay? What? He even sucks the energy out of his traditional vampire housemates who want nothing to do with him. And it's ideas like that that make this show worth watching for fans of the film. On the other hand, if you haven't seen the film but you're interested in a vampire mockumentary that can be stupid in smart ways, and that's for adults, you can watch this show without seeing the film. Plus, the episodes aren't that long. They're around only 30 minutes, which is appropriate. Uh, for me, though, while I did find parts of the film and parts of the show funny, for some reason, I really found the appearance of the ancient vampire in the show hilarious. This isn't the kind of show that I have to watch. I wouldn't mind watching it if it's on, but it's not something that's a must-see for me. Even still, I don't think that anyone could do this kind of thing much better than the folks involved with what we do in the shadows. Ooh, now listen, we got a sneak peek of Hannah way back, I believe it was after the Super Bowl, and you know, the critic and I had mixed feelings about it. However, now, Amazon has all eight, eight episodes available for your binge <laughs> uh, purposes. And the question is, because Hannah was a movie originally, and it had a beginning, middle, and end, well, sort of an end, there were some you know lingering parts, does it work as a TV show? And what did they do differently? And finally, does it work? Yeah. Um, now, after the first episode of Hannah goes through some plot points from the movie, the second episode gets down to the business of separating the show from that film. So here we go, Ref. And in that episode, after Hannah is taken to a CIA black site in Morocco, she, of course, escapes in violent fashion. And, of course, Marissa, who's the head of that CIA outfit, wants her back. Hannah's such a special girl with such a special father, after all. Hmm. But in the midst of all of this, Hannah encounters a British couple on holiday with their two kids. Okay, in, that's similar. In particular, <laughs> she encounters the couple's teenage daughter, who takes a liking to Hannah and quickly wants to be friends, which opens Hannah up to what being a teenager means. But how long will Hannah be able to hang out with these folks without courting danger? Also, what about her father, Eric? Hannah's trying to meet up with him, but Marissa's after him as well. But who do you think gets to him first? Mm. And so exactly what is the end game for Hannah, Eric, and Marissa? I guess you'll have to watch Hannah to find out. But here's the thing. If you're expecting something like the movie, something born-like, let's say, just know that in this show, those kinds of fights and action sequences are separated by lots of typical TV moments. Ugh. 
For instance, you get to know the family that Hannah travels with for a spell. You get to see Marissa interact with her partner and his young son. You get more info about Eric and see how his relationship with Hannah changes after they're no longer all alone in the wilderness and after Hannah's had a taste of what it's like to be around normal people. You meet tangential characters and so on. So if that interests you, and if you have the patience to wait for the butt kicking to commence, then this is your show. Otherwise, you might wonder to yourself why they can't develop the characters in a meaningful way and be thrilling at the same time. Why is it an either or situation? I'd actually prefer to watch Jack Ryan. Hey! Now, I'm just going to not gloat, listeners, but I did tell you. I told you so. All right, moving on to Traitors. Ooh. Ooh. On Netflix. Just, you know, you can binge that too. It's just six total episodes in its first season. <laughs> but can we trust this new show? Mm-mm-mm. Uh-oh. It's 1945. Oh. And the war is ending. But with the fall of Nazism comes the rise of socialism. And a few men, including a man named Roe, in the London branch of the U.S. Secret Service, aren't pleased. They want to keep an eye on the looming Russian threat. But unfortunately for them, Washington has just decided to call most of them back home, which of course displeases Roe. But he doesn't let that dissuade him from attempting to root out communist Russian spies in the British government. And his way in is through newly minted British silver civil servant, Fief Simons. Fief longs to do something exciting and important and to escape her troublesome family any way she can. But much to the displeasure of a new acquaintance of hers, who's a brand new politician for the Socialist Labour Party, Her family's conservative Tory ways have found their way into her psyche, whether she knows it or not. Now, this makes her the perfect recruit for Roe, who's been using one of his agents to seduce her into serving his interests. And as a result, in the midst of a surprising socialist win in parliament, Fief becomes a traitor against her own country, which begs these questions. How deep will she go? Mm. Will she get caught? And who can be trusted? Oh, dear. Because Roe will stop at absolutely nothing to advance his cause, no matter what anybody else, including those who are supposed to be on his side, have to say. But here's the ultimate question for viewers. Should you even care? I mean, look, while Traders looks the part and has some good actors in a lot of roles, it just doesn't capture the imagination in the way that it should. Now, now that's not to say that it's bad. It's just that it doesn't do anything that's interesting or new, which means that it's up to its execution to make it worth watching. But I do have to say that I didn't quite care about much of what I was seeing. I mean, none of these characters is particularly likable, so it's hard to root for someone. And so for me, it was merely something to pass the time. But hey, it's on Netflix. So if you love spy thrillers, even when they're simply decent, you can easily give traitors a quick look-see in the off chance that you disagree. After all, you might be distracted by the occasional music long enough to keep watching. Oh, Netflix ain't loyal. All right, (laughs) now, Mrs. Wilson, which is a miniseries on PBS uh, starring 
a very familiar actress that we all know. Um, and based on her grandmother or great-grandmother, I, it's, it's a very peculiar situation, Ruth Wilson. Uh, this is, they've been teasing this for quite some time. We all know that PBS sort of has a lull between Victoria and Pole Dark. <laughs> so in between there, we've got this new little mini-series, three parts, Mrs. Wilson. Yeah, and in 1963, Allison Wilson received quite the shock or shocks, I should say. First, not long after coming home and checking in on her husband, Alec, who's a famous writer, she finds him dead on the floor of their bedroom. Oh my goodness. Quite the shock indeed. She calls out for help. She thinks of her two sons. She makes a call to his priest. She also makes a call to a mysterious and brusque woman named Coleman, who tells her to behave as normal. But what does that mean? What, what, is that? what do you mean behave normally in this situation? Hmm. And then after her younger son arrives home and receives the terrible news, someone comes a knocking at the door. So Allison opens it and finds a neighbor with a customary gift of food for the family and kind words about Alec. He was such a great writer and everybody loved him, you know. And then not long after that exchange, there's another knock on the door. Oh, okay, you guess it's just another neighbor. And so when Allison opens the door, she's prepared to accept yet another sympathy dish. But instead, there's a woman standing there who says something like, uh, you must be the housekeeper. Uh-oh. And Allison says something like, no, I'm Mrs. Wilson, Alex's wife. Are you? But then something unexpected comes out of the woman's mouth in return. She says, no, I'm Mrs. Wilson, Gladys Wilson. I'm Alexander's wife. Oh, my gosh. Quite the shock again, indeed. Now, this just can't be. After all, Alex showed Allison his divorce papers all those years ago before they married. Mm. I mean, they've been married for over 20 years. Mm. Also, he's been sleeping in their bed and caring for their sons all that time. Mm. And with that, Mrs. Wilson takes us on a journey, shuttling back to when Alec and Allison met at a particular branch of government that I won't give away, mm. along with many other things that I won't give away, and forward to when Allison has to make sense of all of this. She either has to hide or uncover the truth, and with her background and connections, she has the resources to do so. But will there be any forces out there that want her to go away quietly instead? She better watch out. Yeah. And just what does it mean to be Mrs. Wilson? Dun, dun, dun. Oh, so look, everybody. If you like Masterpiece and you're interested in watching a woman attempt to come to grips with a life-altering secret that's dumped on her head after the death of her supposedly great man of a husband, and subsequently, though reluctantly, launch into a search for the truth, Mrs. Wilson is for you. It's paced appropriately, the stakes are obviously high, and nothing is as it seems. Plus, you're certainly going to care about what happens and to whom it happens. Also, it has a dynamite cast led by Luther's and the affairs Ruth Wilson in the role of Allison, who was, as the ref hinted, her actual grandmother. Can you believe it? Yep, you heard it. <laughs> okay. This is based on a true story starring the lead character's real granddaughter. That's oh. so crazy. That is so crazy. 
Also, Game of Thrones is Ian Glenn as Alec and Harry Potter's and True Blood's Fiona Shaw as Coleman, along with the rest of the supporting cast, do wonderful work. And with just three one-hour parts, this isn't a major commitment. It intrigued me, and I actually found most of it gripping. But I must insist that you avoid looking up the real story. Just oh. watch it first, then investigate if you so choose second. Oh, I'm so glad that it's good. I was very nervous about this one because she's very, very close to the story. I mean, literally yeah. close yeah. to it. Now, this has been one of the most anticipated reboots probably in a very, very long time, especially from its host. <laughs> We're talking about The Twilight Zone, which is only available on CBS All Access. So no, you can't go on demand and look through CBS and find it through there. You have to have an uh, CBS All Access uh, subscription. And the fact of the matter is, can we pause and say, CBS All Access is really giving people reasons to get their own subscription to this. It, I, I'm tempted because they have some very, at least three, at least two strong shows that we can completely highly recommend. But anyway, moving on, this is an anthology. Remember the old Twilight Zone? If you can't just, there's no through story here. The only through story is that it's strange. So the first of first two episodes are available um, as of the 1st of April. And then from there on, you can start watching it on Thursdays, uh, starting uh, April 11th. And they're only like, what, about 10 episodes? So it shouldn't be uh, a huge commitment. But it is episodic, so therefore you will not be able to binge the whole series as um, once it comes out. So yeah. uh, we did hint that a special person is in this. <laughs> consistently he's having a great year <laughs> well yeah great years years uh now in this third reboot of rod serling's classic franchise there's an updated look to go along with updated casting decisions but there are classic touches as well for instance jordan peele uh-oh who serves as co-executive producer and co-developer is the host and narrator who does the classic intro and outro. Mm -hmm. Also, each episode is a standalone story, as the ref was saying, including a few episodes that are new takes on old fan favorites from the original series. But the question is, will enough of the episodes be good enough to warrant a watch, especially if you don't already pay for CBS All Access? Yeah. Mm. Well, in the first episode that was released, which is called The Comedian, and which is currently available actually for free on YouTube. Oh, thanks, critic. Yeah. So Kumail Nanjiani plays a comedian named Samir who wants to make a difference via his comedy. He wants to talk about the issues, baby. However, he's the only one who finds that kind of stuff funny. And so after a hyper-successful comedian played by Tracy Morgan tells him that if he makes his comedy personal, he will succeed, Samir finds that that's the case. But in typical Twilight Zone fashion, there's a nasty little twist. And so will Samir be overcome by his newfound success and his newfound yet spooky power as a result? Or will he be able to do the right thing? Or what do you think? Mm. Now, I do have to say that I didn't find this episode funny at all, which is okay because that's kind of the point. However, 
There were things that were written for laughs that just didn't land. In addition, I didn't find this episode scary or interesting either. Plus, it's comments about what actually winds up being successful in comedy and in entertainment and art overall were stale. And it's comments about relationships did nothing for me. I mean, what's the new thought here? The only good thing I can say about it is that it ended on a fitting note. So things didn't get off to the best of starts for this revitalized series, in my opinion. But... That's just the first of the two episodes that were released during this reboot's premiere. So let's get to the second. Maybe they'll redeem themselves. Maybe. Maybe. In Nightmare at 30,000 Feet, which is a remake of the classic episode Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, Adam Scott plays a journalist named Justin who's gone through a lot lately. He's had mental troubles. Even still, despite... Uh, the objections of his wife and some strange coincidences, he gets on a plane to go to Israel for work. I mean, he has to do his job, right? But unfortunately for him, the strangeness only continues after he starts to listen to a peculiar podcast on a device that was left in the seat pocket in front of him on the plane. Uh Uh-oh. It tells the story of the crash of a flight with the exact same flight number as his flight. I don't like that. And you can kind of guess what happens from there, but Mm. I won't give it away. And I'm leaving a whole bunch of stuff out on purpose. Now, I got to tell you that this episode was much more like it as a piece of entertainment. Comparatively, I found it much more interesting, and I thought that it was a clever update on the classic episode and I like the pacing and execution overall. Mm -hmm. I also like that it wasn't trying so hard to make a point. I'm over people trying to do something profound and make a statement about some trendy topic only to come up with something obvious. (laughs) And so, based on these first two episodes, it looks like the Twilight Zone is still a mixed bag after all of these years. And this means that if you were a fan of its previous incarnations, there's no reason not to check it out now. Otherwise, I wouldn't recommend that you pay for CBS All Access just to see it. However, as the ref was mentioning, when combined with Star Trek Discovery and the good fight on this platform, the Twilight Zone will probably have a few episodes that you'll be happy to add to your watch list. Just know that the way one person responds to an episode will probably be different from the way another responds to that same episode. Now, this is the big one here. We've got a season premiere on HBO. Mm. Veep is back for its final season. Now, we've been in sort of a lull and a holding pattern because uh, the lead actress did have health issues. Thank goodness she's um, uh, just moving forward with that. Uh, I'm going to tell you, we're going to miss Veep. Uh, but the question is, is it really time for it to go? I mean, mm. you know, that's that's go on a high note. Yeah. Yeah. And um, last season, uh, former Veep and former president Selena Meyer, (laughs) played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, had to contend with not being president anymore. (laughs) And so she focused on trying to get a presidential library instead. In addition, her daughter announced that she and her partner were going to have a kid, thanks to a little donation from one of Selena's staffers. (laughs) while two of Selena's other top staffers unexpectedly found themselves in a similar situation. And then at the end of the season, things were looking up for Selena because she was back in a position to run for president again, which excited both her and her dysfunctional staff. However, one of her opponents will be 
former White House staffer and current idiot, Jonah, who announced his campaign by saying, quote, let's send them a message by shoving the guy that they hate the most, which is himself, right back in their faces. And so in this final season of Veep, Selena is once again on the campaign trail, and she, along with everyone else, is as ridiculous as ever. And to start things off, she desperately wants to capitalize on her lead in the polls, which means that instead of actually learning from past campaign mistakes, she'd rather do things like trotting out her Black grandson when it's strategic to do so and hiding him otherwise. You know, it's Iowa, yes. New Hampshire, no. And she wants to do that without announcing her run just yet, which causes problems. But I guess that's better than what Jonah has to contend with because he just married his ex-stepsister. Yes. Oh my gosh. And of course, much more craziness ensues and will ensue throughout this show's final seven episodes, including the return of a particular character and beloved actor as a rival candidate. And I'm happy to report that the cast's timing is still spot on, the pacing is still rapid fire, and irreverence still rules the roost, spurred by incessant personal jabs and offensive wordplay. But the question is, does Veep still work in the age of Trump? Well, while Selena is as politically incorrect as they come, unlike Trump, she does try to do the right thing in public. It's just that in, in, yeah, it's in private, that's where it's a different story. Also, instead of trying to gin up voter rage, Selena would much rather avoid hot button topics altogether. For instance, she says that she'd rather not talk about immigration because it's too issuey. And so, <laughs> and so if Veep has worked for you in the past, I think that it will continue to do so now. For me, it's the kind of show that I appreciate for its execution, but I'm not in love with it anymore. I like it now, and I like its 30-minute runtime even more. Ooh. All right, let's move on to a series finale. Uh a season, or yes, it's a completely, the series finale. It's done. It's over. Smilf. They've had a lot of issues. Showtime's had a lot of issues with Smilf. And actually, this is an ABC production, mm-hmm. uh, which is very different for ABC uh, going to cable, uh, like paid cable like this. It's canceled. It's done. And the question is, is that a good thing? Well, okay. Look. After successful first seasons of TV shows, second seasons need to push the narrative forward. Take Atlanta, for instance. Season one was about trying to make it, while season two was about what happens when you sort of make it. Even with its strange aesthetic, Atlanta took you to the next step. However, for the second season of Smilf, it seems that creator and star Frankie Shaw just tried too hard to experiment with her narrative and forgot to take us from point A to point B, resulting in unnecessary meandering. I mean, in the penultimate episode of season two, exploring what Smilf would be as a Western in the style of The Magnificent Seven was an interesting idea, but what does it tell us that's new and of importance? And so whether there was behind the scenes drama or not, it seems that Frankie fell in love with cool ideas and timely issues only to forget to tell a good story at the same time. And while Smilf ends on a bittersweet note, it didn't build up to its final episode in a powerful way. I did like the addition of Broadway vet Sherry Renee Scott to the cast as Aunt Jackie, though. 
Well, there you go with that. Smilf, it was real. Um, let's go to an upcoming season or series premiere that's coming on television. Now, you may have had access to it otherwise, but this is actually something that you can watch on television. It's called A Discovery of Witches. Boy. Mm. Okay. It's on AMC and BBC America. Um, if you really want the details, it's after the second season premiere of Killing Eve. But you can catch that now um, if you want to. It's been already renewed for two additional streaming seasons, which is a big deal. It means this show has something that uh, AMC and BBC America likes. And it's about eight episodes. So the question is, did you like what you saw in January and do you still like it now? <laughs> so uh, based on the All Souls book trilogy by Deborah Harkness, A Discovery of Witches features Dr. Diana Bishop, played by Teresa Palmer, who's the youngest ever tenured professor at Yale. She specializes in science history with a concentration in alchemy. Yeah. Hey. And after a speech on the topic at Oxford, she finds that she's being considered for a highly coveted professorship there. Not bad at all, right? Mm-hmm. However, she's a witch. Aww. Yeah. Yeah, witch. But she... <laughs> what, is she? <laughs> what is she? Well, you know, we know that one politician, <laughs> one political candidate said, I'm not a witch. This is the opposite. Okay, I was just... just... <laughs> clarifying what kind of witch we're talking about here. <laughs> but the kind of witches, Ref, a reluctant witch. Mm-hmm. Now, in a world dominated by humans, witches, vampires, and demons are hiding in plain sight for safety reasons. And these creatures have their own underworld political structure that poses challenges. Also, some strange things are afoot, which seems to have something to do with the autumnal equinox and is accelerated by Diana. You see, while at Oxford's library, Diana comes into the possession of a mysterious book, though she's unaware of this. And let's just say that she absorbs the book by mistake. Hmm. Now, this absorption event has numerous repercussions and catches the immediate attention of Oxford biochemistry professor, Matthew de Clermont who's played by Matthew Good. Oh, we love him. Because Matthew's, wait for it, a vampire. Of course he is. And this book supposedly contains important information about the origin of magical creatures, which in the wrong hands could lead to the extinction of vampires and others, or in the right hands might be the clue as to why certain strange goings on are going on. And so just what is it about Diana that caused the book to choose her as its vessel? Does it have anything to do with her long-deceased parents? And what kind of threats has Diana unwittingly opened herself up to? Because while Matthew seems like he's truly concerned about Diana's safety, which is strange for a vampire, and while he's especially concerned about the safety of his species, of course, there might be others out there who aren't so peaceable. And these others are none too pleased to find that Diana and Matthew have crossed paths. But why? Danger what? abounds. Danger, danger, danger. Danger. All right, now look. This is what a discovery of witches is like. It's like if Lifetime wanted to do some sort of version of True Blood. Oh, boy. That could air on the BBC or PBS. Because it seems anachronistic at times. Early on, Diana rides a bike like a school teacher out of the early 20th century. 
and it's set at Oxford along with other European locales, which always lends an air of nostalgia. And actually, I like that kind of feel for this genre. However, the dialogue is often bland and lacking in personality and finesse. And I do have to say that Diana matches that. It's, diff- yeah, I mean, it's uh. difficult to buy that so many people are drawn to her because she just doesn't come across as special, regardless of what other characters say and what she's able to do. Mm. Matthew, on the other hand, along with some of the villains, is much more interesting. And Diana's aunts, played by Alex Kingston and Valerie Pettiford, add some heft to the story during the latter parts <laughs> of this first season. <laughs> you love heft. I did. It was good. <laughs> And so, while a discovery of witches has its strengths, I doubt that it's good enough for people who don't find witches and vampires and demons and all things magical interesting. However, if you do like that kind of stuff, wrapped in a package of literary-minded fantasy horror romance, and if a moderate pace punctuated by occasional jolts suits you, go ahead and check this out. If you're patient, there might be enough meat on the bone to satisfy you. But watch out for some, though not all, of the special effects. Oh, kazam. Uh, season, finale, or season finale of a very popular show has occurred. Mm. This Is Us on NBC has concluded its third season and is coming back. Yeah. So the question is this. We have been taken... I have not watched the season finale. You did. I've watched every other episode. We've been taken through hills and valleys, trying to find father's origins, Vietnam, all the way to, you know, people wanting to be ballerinas again. It's just all over the place. People winning elections, but not wanting to be supportive. We've got, you know, people drinking again, but not, no one can smell it on him. So it's just very strange. (laughs) But... We keep coming back for more. We want more. This is us. Why? I don't know, but we want it. And I will go on record again saying, as on page and even acted a little, these people are not like people you want to hang out with, in my opinion. They could be a little self-centered. They could be a little, a little. Uh, well, yeah, a lot of stuff. They could be very nasty to their parents at times, especially with the children's age. But we love the actors. The actors are so great. Ugh, what are we going to do with you? This is us. We can end right there. I mean, <laughs> look, look, okay. So let me just piggyback off of everything that the ref said. Um, I liked the first half of this season of This Is Us. I was fine with it. The second half, not so much. Mm. And what I kept thinking while watching the show during the past couple of months or so is that a compelling topic doesn't necessarily lead to compelling storylines or characters. It's actually the reverse in a lot of cases because it's the characters who have to drive the story. Mm-hmm. Now look. A dangerous pregnancy and a premature birth are compelling and important topics to explore. Yes. But how do they drive the storyline and advance Kate's and Toby's characterizations? Mm-hmm. It didn't feel specific to them until some of the moments in the finale between Kate and Rebecca. We also, as you said, witnessed Kevin's relapse this season. Yeah. And again, it's a compelling topic, but I'm not buying its execution I'd actually rather watch Shameless for an exp- 
exploration of that. And it's not even a drama. <laughs> Furthermore, I like certain character-actor combinations, but many are underserved. What happened to Jack in the second half? Yeah. I mean, is he now a bit player? What happened to Randall's kids? Deja. And so on. I can keep going. Oh, we just missed Deja. Because this show seems to do a better job of creating a sense of urgency for certain characters rather than others. For instance, Deja's storyline last season, I'm going to keep coming back to this one. Yeah, yeah. Was the perfect example of what this show could do at its best. It was heartbreaking and urgent at the same time. I didn't feel like they were stalling. No. Speaking of which... I'm just not that interested in Randall and Beth when they're at odds. Sorry. No, I'm not either, and I don't like it. And I know couples do go through things. You don't want to make them perfect, but it's coming out of nowhere. Yeah, and just because couples go through those things doesn't mean it has to be in your show. Not every couple goes through it. True, true. And we are watching a TV show fictional. Yes. Hello. So, you know, okay. (laughs) Let me get back on track here. So look. I prefer them, Ref, and I know you do as well, when they're fighting something together. Yes. And as I was watching their storyline this season, I could hear the faintest of echoes of Blackish last season. Oh, that was a a relapse for you. (laughs) (laughs) So hopefully, I won't give away what happens in the finale. Hopefully they've gotten that out of their system. Please. I also didn't like the episode in the hospital when Kate was having an emergency delivery. Yes. I almost stopped watching then and there. It was stagnant and petulant. I mean, get on with it. You got these people whining and crying in the waiting room while this woman might die? It was ridiculous. Yeah, it was. And so I'll end my review by focusing on this question, everybody. What is the heart of This Is Us? Jack. Well, in in my opinion, well, okay. (laughs) Now, look, in my opinion, the heart of the show was best exemplified this season by the moment when Randall first calls Beth on the phone and doesn't know what to say. So Kev has to feed him lines while listening through another phone. That is you. This is us. Or rather, that's the best of you. So stop forcing other stuff into it. Let yourself fly, glide, and soar through the various moments of life. Don't plod your way through plot points in search of a manufactured conflict because I know that I won't be able to take much more of it, but that's just me, I guess. You know, I have to say this before we sign off. I did enjoy Toby's uh, episode Mm. explaining his depression. And golly gee, anytime you have Felicia Rashad being anybody's mother, (laughs) I am tuning in and I am certainly watching. So we'll have to see if next season gives us more of that or are we going to have to continue this kind of conversation? So the buffet is over. It is the last call. (laughs) It is time to unbuckle that belt buckle and uh, take a nice little nap we'll be back next week with more tv i'm sure thanks for listening for additional resources visit whywatchthat.com good idea and we'd love to hear from you so go ahead and leave comments feedback and you can rate us on itunes we'll see you next week see you